So we'll be reading Genesis 1 through to Genesis 2 verse 3 on page 1 of your blue Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called this light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit and the seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be the lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark scared times and days and years. And let, the, and let them be lights of the vault in the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals which according to, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and to all of the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he had made what he had made that God saw that all he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had done had he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Good job, that was great. Uh, Matt, just before you sit down, uh, Matt was saying that, you know, I'm his boss, uh, but I'd just like him to know that he sent me a memo this week saying that the dress code was brown shoes, blue trousers <laughs> and blue shoes. <laughs> You don't have to leave, man. <laughs> Friends, we come to uh, Genesis chapter 1. In fact, for the whole three weeks, we're going to spend on that section we just heard read. And the reason for that is because when you uh, look at this section of the Bible from chapter 1, verse 1, to 2, verse 3, it forms the first section of the book. Sometimes the um, editors of our, our Bible have done us wonderful favours with chapter demarcations, and in this case, they've mucked it up. Um, that is, God didn't inspire these breaks, just so you, you know, like that uh, the editors who did it maybe a thousand or so years ago uh, got it slightly wrong. Let me show you why, and then I'll, I'll pray and we'll tuck into it. Uh, when you get to chapter 2, verse 4... If every Bible is open, it would be really handy. You see what it says there? This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When you go through the book of Genesis, um, uh, there are those sort of taglines throughout the book that mark off the sections. This is the account of Noah, or this is the account of... And you go at various points, Abraham, when you get to chapter 11 or, or whatever. The, it, they form the sort of literary taglines that separate out the sections. So the first section is chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 3. And we're going to spend three weeks on this, thinking about the God who created all things, uh, the nature of us being made in the image of God, and then to think through why does God rest and what does it say to us about how we should live in terms of working and resting in this world. Okay, So three weeks in this chapter. Those of you who are briefed well in understanding what the scriptures say, know that, that um, we get a slightly distorted view of what's going on because we're dealing with stuff before Genesis chapter 3 when we get people just rejecting God, uh, where sin enters into the world. So I, I'm aware of that. I'll probably tag into that at a few different points just to show what, what a difference that makes. But nonetheless, these, these first two chapters set up frameworks that are powerful, and as Matt said before, instruct us about who we are, okay? That's roughly where we're going. Let me pray, and we'll tuck into uh, this first chapter together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your extraordinary love and mercy towards us in your Son, and we ask that as we uh, consider this, your word, you'll give us insight and understanding about who you are and how we relate to you. Uh, Father, we know that as the creator God, uh, you have set up the frameworks in this world 
You've made us with purpose. You've given us clarity about what it means to live under your authority. And we ask that you, you'll help us to uh, allow you really to ask those searching questions of us and uh, our understanding of what it means to be people you have made. Father, we pray this in uh, your gracious and glorious name. Amen. Okay, so we tuck into uh, the first page of the Bible, the first chapter of the Bible, and you know immediately that we enter into a place of controversy. Uh, That is, there is a huge elephant in the room. Uh, There's debate about creation and evolution. Uh, There are questions about how old is the earth. When we come to chapter 1, are we talking about six 24-hour days in a literal way? Uh, I'm aware that when I get into a room of people like this, you will have different agendas or expectations of what I will do. Uh, Some of you will be very keen for me to dispose of modern scientific theories about the origins of the earth. Others of you will be desperately keen for me to work out a way in which we can combine what the Bible says uh, with what science says in a lovely integrated way that makes sense of both of them. Uh, But there'll also be people in the room who, uh, for you, you're not sure if you're a follower of the God that we're speaking of or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons maybe you don't believe in the God of the Bible is because of your scientific preconceptions. And they don't allow you to even consider the possibility of a creator God. I get the fact that we hit this chapter from different directions. Now, let me say, it's not wrong to ask these questions about the, the integration between the Bible and science. Not, not a wrong question. But can I say, if you're trying to understand Genesis chapter 1, essentially those questions are misplaced. Right? They're, they're the wrong questions to ask of this part of the Bible. Let me try and explain by analogy. I want you to imagine that you are a medical student at Adelaide University, Okay and you're coming up for a big anatomy exam, and for the first time in the history of Adelaide University, the professors of the medical school have decided, in their wisdom, that it'll be an open book exam, okay? You can take one book, right, into this open book anatomy exam, and you're standing outside, and everyone's got their books, you know, the recommended textbook, which is, you know, 4,000 pages thick, you know, everyone's gonna cart it in. And as you're standing there, you notice one of your fellow students is carrying this book into the exam, right? The Australian Women's Weekly cookbook, right? And you think, what on earth is going on here, right? And you go up to this student, you say, you know, I've got my 4,000-page textbook on anatomy. What are you doing with a Women's Weekly cookbook for an anatomy exam, right? And the student says to you, in sort of a profound and wise-looking way, well, you know... We are what we eat, okay? As as if that explains... I mean, so obvious, isn't it, when you think of it that way, right? Um, Let me say, when it comes to this first chapter of Genesis, it it is not written to answer those scientific questions, right? That is not the purpose of why it is written. This chapter is profound. It's completely accurate and trustworthy, in explaining a whole lot of more essential questions that we have. Questions like who God is. Questions like who we are and what our purpose is. Uh, Questions about our world and why is it the way it is. Uh, Our relationship with the world. 
Uh, it interacts, especially once you get to chapter three, with questions about why we have a world that is full of beauty and charm and grace and delight, but also pain and sickness, where people get B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you know, a world that is like that, death. So rather than impose our 21st century questions on this part of the Bible, what I want to do for three weeks is turn to this chapter and let it ask us questions and hear what God has to say to us. Okay? That's what we're going to do. Genesis 1. When we turn to this chapter, it's an incredibly sophisticated work of literature. Now, that may not be your first impression when you heard it read. Uh, If you were writing the great book of our time, would you start it off with these words? In the beginning. Okay, that is. And when you read it through, maybe you felt like it was repetitious or boring or even childish at different points. But can I say, it is so carefully structured and the structure points to the essential message of the chapter. I'll, just, I'll pull out a few hooks so you can see the way in which it works. It's simple but not simplistic. For example, the use of seven. Now, when you go through the scriptures, you'll understand that numbers are used at various points and they're packaged with content. And seven is often the number that points to wholeness or perfection or the ideal. Now, when you come through this first chapter in a bit, uh, there were seven days. The first sentence in Genesis 1 has seven Hebrew words. When you get to the second sentence of um, Genesis chapter 1, it has 14 Hebrew words, seven times two. Uh, seven times, it's, we, we hear this statement, God made. Seven times, it was so. Seven times, it was good or very good. Each of the days is incredibly structured. Uh, take day one. We have the command from God. Verse three, let there be light. We have the fulfillment. Verse three, and there was light. We have the explanation or the elaboration. The light was good. And then we have the day formula as you go through. There was evening, there was morning, there was the first day. It is incredibly structured. And the structure, as I say, highlights the message. So if you were, having heard it read for you so well a few moments ago, if you were thinking about what the main message of chapter one is, and you had to summarise it with one word, one word for this whole chapter, what would it be? Okay? I want you to swap a word with the person. I'm not going to ask you what you say, right? But I want you to think of the word and swap it with the person next to you and swear them to secrecy, okay? So uh, one word that summarises this chapter what would it be? I'll give you 15 seconds to work it out. You only need one word. Be quick. You don't have an option of not saying a word, all right, just in case you're wondering. See, what's the main theme of Genesis chapter 1? It's not creation, is it? Sorry, you said, I didn't mean to pull you, pull you out. <laughs> Who said creation? No, no, I'm going to go. It's not creation, right? It is God. It's God. What does Genesis 1 tell us about God? He is the hero of this story. He is mentioned, Elohim, 35 times in this part of the Bible. 
right? 35 times. Now, for those of you who are very good at your seven times tables, right, that is seven times five. Right? This is incredibly carefully worked through. The subject of almost every sentence. And what do we find out about God? Well, he exists before anything. Uh, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Right? He's not created, he is there. There is God, and then God creates. God created the heavens and the earth. He brings the whole of the universe into existence, which exposes his extraordinary nature. I mean, it's estimated uh, that there are around 400 billion stars in the universe that we know about. 400 billion and 170 million galaxies or something like that. I mean, I just can't even get, get my head around that. We have no idea of the scope of our universe. God is the one who created all that. And yet, here's the God who also superintends um, spider's webs. You know, the delicacy of spider's webs. He's the God who has oversight of the careful balance in our ecology through the way in which he has created. This is our God. It's no wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Of course they do. He is that sort of God. Everything's created for a purpose. You discover that. Uh, God declares everything he's made is good. Good, 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 very good. Verse 31, God saw all that he has made and it was very good. Now at this point it's not a moral statement, um, good as opposed to bad or degenerate. It's a statement of purpose. He's made it and everything he's made serves the purpose for which he has made it. We're told that God creates by his word. In Genesis there is not one scientific formula. Right? It's just not there. That's not the point. God creates everything from nothing by speaking. God said, and it was so. And can I say that's such a contrast with both ancient and modern views of our world? The Babylonian epic, uh, the Enuma Elish, uh, spoke of the way in which creation came to existence because the gods got into a fight with each other. And like the world, for example, my memory of it is that one of those gods had his head cut off, it rolled away, and formed the earth. Right? That's, that's the way it sort of happened. Now, what sharp contrast that is to what we read here in Genesis 3. God, the author of all things, brings into existence by his word. But what a sharp, sharp contrast with modern Big Bang theories. Science reaches back into the past as far as it can go. It hits a wall and says there's a spontaneous event that created and caused everything to come into existence. Right? Well, it's an interesting speculation, <laughs> but it's, it's trying to speculate beyond the extent of knowledge. You see? It, accidental occurrence. No, not in Genesis 1. Nothing is random or accidental or by chance. God speaks and it happens. And everything that's been made is dependent upon him. God doesn't make it and sort of drop kick it and you know, sort of, I'll catch up with you in a few billion years or something. You know, we don't have a God like that. He actually sustains everything he has made. Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 17, he says, God gives all men life and breath and everything else. He's reflecting on this chapter. Every breath you take, 
every signal your brain sends to any other part of your body, this is the God who superintends every activity that takes place. Friends, this is the creator God of the Bible. So let me for a few moments talk with you about the implications that flow from this, um, the consequences, if you like. What I want to do is contrast with other worldviews and religions, both ancient and modern. And forgive me for doing this ever so briefly, right? Because that's, uh, that it bears a lot more, lot more words. These opening words in the Bible, they, they critique or cut across all sorts of other worldviews. So we've already seen the way that uh, Genesis 1 interacts and compares with an understanding of the ancient world. Uh, the ancient world had uh, various religions and they all had a stack of gods. And those gods had spheres of influence in all the different areas of um, the world and creation and existence. Uh, you know, most of those religions named the moon and the stars uh, as gods who had the influence over the way in which this world worked. Now, notice how different it is when you come to Genesis chapter 1. Um, the, the moon and the star, they aren't even named. They're just lights, greater lights, lesser lights. And that is deliberate. Uh, there's no naming of them because there is no suggestion they have any independent power authority at all. They are creations of the true God. The name that's used for God here in Genesis chapter 1 is Elohim. When you get to chapter 2, um, we're introduced to Yahweh. Elohim is the, the, if you like, the generic name for the God. When you get to chapter 2, we're given the personal name, Yahweh, who is the covenant keeper, promise keeper, God. Now, this is deliberate. See, in chapter 1, what we're being told is there is one God, the God, the only God. Let me tell you about him 35 times. The God, the God, the God, the God, who rules over everything, made everything, controls everything. The God, the God, the God. Not many gods at all. Yeah? And 35 times later, you actually get the message. The God, right? Sun and the moon, we're not even going to name them. They're so incidental under the authority of this God. Ancient worldviews. But, you know, it's exactly the same for modern religions. You pick up on Hinduism, for example. It's a religion with many gods. They all have a sphere of influence. There's a circular view of history. Reincarnation is the understanding of how people exist. And the God of the Bible uh, is regarded... Well, he's, he's just not on the horizon, really. It's a totally different view of the gods and the way in which they operate. But when we turn to the scriptures, the God of the Bible, he is eternal. Creation isn't random or chaotic. And people are valuable because God has given them value. See, if you talk to a Hindu about the difference between Matt Lehman and a cockroach, right, um, the Hindu will say, oh, it's basically no difference. You know? And uh, you wouldn't agree with that at all, would you? No, he's your pastor. Right? But that, that is, it's, there's just a different understanding of how, how people exist based on previous decisions in a previous life. It, it's such a strong contrast. And it's the same with, say, Buddhism. Buddhism says you've got to soar by separating yourself from this world. Genesis chapter 1 says the world is beautiful and it is wonderful and it's to be enjoyed as a good gift from God. How different is that? 
is a totally different worldview that we're being set up with. And even modern worldviews uh, like atheism, made popular by people like Hitchens or Dawkins or Lawrence Krauss. I mean, in this, this worldview, uh, people are just collations of random atoms that are caught up in the slipstream of a meaningless universe. I mean, that's just who we are. I remember reading one author who put it like this. He said, we just are for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. You know? uh, I went to a funeral of someone I'd known for 40 years, just over the sort of Christmas period. And um, the message from the funeral was that life is circular and that we live on through our, our children. And this person had left explicit instructions that they were to be cremated and their ashes scattered at the place where they were born, a completion of the circle of life and their thinking. That is such a different view to what we have presented to us here in the scriptures. We don't have Lion King theology here. God creates. He is the one who gives meaning and purpose. People are the pinnacle of his creative activity. He has made us for eternity with him. It is so vastly different. And it doesn't matter the worldview you interact with. Uh, you pick up on an environmentalist worldview. Um, it's huge, the thinking about the environment in our, our day-to-day, the issues of global warming, uh, coal-fired power stations rather than renewables, the world population that's rapidly increasing to beyond sustainability. Now, let me say that Christians actually are best positioned to have the most positive input on thinking about the environment in this world. It makes sense, doesn't it? We actually know the one who made the world, so we've got a fair idea about what his intentions are for it. I'm not saying Christians haven't abused the environment. I think we have over the years. But a right reading of the Bible gives you your best chance of understanding how it is we should interact. But of course, for many people, the creation is their God. It's the very centre of their existence and they derive their own meaning and purpose from the world around them. And on this view, often people see animals as being as valuable as human beings. So people can talk about the murder of whales, as if whales somehow occupy the same space as human beings. Genesis 1 doesn't allow you to understand things that way. Uh, if you're in a situation, you know, in some deepest, darkest country in Africa where the last white rhinoceros is stampeding towards a poverty-stricken old woman who is not far off dying, and you have a gun, what should you do? You shoot the rhinoceros every time. You see, because people are made in the image of God and they had to rule over the animals and therefore the care of people is absolutely critical in that scheme of things. Understand? It's, God actually gives us understanding of the world. Uh, it contrasts with a, a view of materialism that actually, I think, dominates Western nations. So we're coming up for an election, you know, a federal election, maybe six weeks' time. What's on the agenda for our election? What is the issue that dominates the headlines? Well, it's the economy. It's standard of living. It's the question of whether retirees uh, will get their franking credits or not. 
uh, will younger people be able to afford home ownership? What's happening with our superannuation arrangements? Negative gearing, will that be scrapped or not? They're all economic questions, essentially. Um, and they do dominate our horizon because we see the world through that sort of lens, even though it's, it's subtle in some ways, but it's the one that dominates us. But friends, Genesis is so clear. We don't get our meaning and our fulfilment through what God has made. That is dumb, isn't it? Imagine letting your bank balance or your house determine how you feel about yourself. Allowing the creation to dictate your sense of well-being. See, God is the one who helps us understand who we are and our value and our purpose. And we are then to superintend the creation that he's given to us. And if we do it the other way around, it's just, it's just getting all back to front. And no wonder we'll be totally confused about who we are and what life is all about. Friends, what does it mean to believe in the God who created the heavens and the earth? Now, I want to suggest to you it will have enormous implications for a worldview that's based on atheistic, biological, evolutionary understanding of the universe. No, no question about that. But there are actually far more essential things uh, that we learn from this and we understand from this, it actually humbles us to know that God has created all things. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what's mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? It's the right question, isn't it? When you're confronted with a God who has the capacity and power to create the whole universe, friends, who are we that God should even take an interest in us? Huh? It's humbling. It also reminds us we're accountable. Uh, God is the owner of the world, and we are subtenants, and we have a responsibility to him for the way in which we live in his world. But I also want to suggest to you that when we come to this part of the Bible, what we're confronted with is not just a God who is awesome in power, but he's also a God you can trust. I've got um, a few grandchildren now. One of them is two years old. His name is Ollie. He was around at our place the other day. We have a staircase in our home, wooden staircase, fairly steep with about sort of uh, eight steps and six steps, right? I, if I was the parent here, I wouldn't probably let him go up the stairs at this stage. I think they're dangerous, but, uh, but his parents are comfortable with him learning the school of hard knocks approach. You know. Ollie went up the stairs, right? Uh, I'm one of these helicopter grandparents, and uh, so I was helicoptering around at the bottom of the stairs thinking he's going to kill himself, you know. And uh, he came down the stairs, made it to the first landing, turned the landing, I was at the bottom, he smiled at me and then did something he has never done before, right? He saw Papa was at the bottom of the stairs and he took two steps and jumped. <laughs> and, and Papa's heart was in his mouth, right? Uh, uh, because at this point, he had two things going through his head. 
right? Uh, one was, Papa will catch me, right? Uh, he thought I was strong enough and clever enough to do that. And the second thing is, Papa will want to catch me. Uh, <laughs> actually, Papa is well disposed towards me and won't let me kill myself, right? Now, now just to put you at ease, I did catch him, right? Um, and then explain that perhaps that wasn't the smartest activity that he could have engaged in at that point in time, right? Um, friends, this, this opening chapter sets clearly in place while we can trust God. He is awesome in power. Right? You can't help but think the God who made everything is that God. But there's, there's a subtle drumbeat running here that tells us the God who makes with such grace and generosity and goodness all that we're surrounded by, even when it's corrupted by the fall, we'll get to that. But the God who's made all that, doesn't, it expresses his very character of generosity towards us. When you get to the New Testament, the whole of the Bible unfolds in a way that keeps expressing that goodness of God. Genesis 3, we see people rejecting God. Well, what does God do? He keeps persisting and reaching out to people who've rejected him. And it reaches its high point in the New Testament when he sends his beloved son into this world. In Colossians chapter 1, this son is described as the one through whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. A good God who through his son, through whom everything was made, is redeeming people, calling people to himself to enjoy him forever. Now, let me say at a personal level, this has huge impact. So I come back to say, Sue, uh, we get a diagnosis of lymphoma six months ago. And not for a moment has Sue doubted either the sovereign power of God or his goodness towards her. For he is, he is that God who can be trusted at all times. And he is revealed to us here, right from the very start of the Bible. Genesis 1, a God of unimaginable, awesome capacity. And Genesis 1, a God that you can trust with your life. Right? This is our God. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that um, even though we've only so briefly been able to uh, consider uh, you and your character here in Genesis chapter 1, we thank you for your, uh, for your vast generosity and capacity and goodness and elegance and grace. And Father, we pray that you'll keep filling our hearts and minds with the knowledge of who you are as we live in your world and as we call other people to recognise who you are. Uh, Father, we thank you for the mercy you've shown us in your Son. We know that's just a, an expl explication, an elaboration of what we read here in Genesis chapter 1. And we pray that you will help us to keep trusting in him uh, for the forgiveness and life we have out of your kindness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.